I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Stephanie Clemens. Stephanie is an award-winning performer, choreographer, and director who has worked on the pre-Broadway and Broadway productions of Hamilton, In the Heights, Bring It On, and If Then. Her body of work can be seen currently on Broadway and around the world as the associate and supervising choreographer of Hamilton. Of all she has done, Stephanie is most proud of her nonprofit, Katie's Art Project, started 10 years ago, which connects kids facing life threatening and terminal illnesses with artists to collaborate on an art, dance, and music project. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? What an intro. I'm fantastic now. Thank you. I'm so, I love that. You're like a sportscaster. Um, I'm really good. Thank you so much for asking. It's a bit rainy here in New York, but um, it's been a pretty good day with my son in our semi-quarantine situation. Stephanie, let's start with something that's that's close to your heart, Katie's Art Project. What's the story behind Katie's Art Project? Yes. So I started Katie's Art Project 10 years ago um, when I was in In the Heights on Broadway. I was a swing in that show, which we can talk about later in the podcast, but um. I had a lot of offstage time and I had always wanted to start something in honor of my best friend who had passed away when we were 19 years old. And um, we always said we would start a clothing line together and do something artistic. And uh, she was an incredible artist. And I really felt like the art that she made towards the end of her life specifically was really what was getting her through these really difficult moments. You know, she had a bone marrow transplant and the chemo was failing. She had clinical trials, all those things that you kind of do when you're facing a terminal illness. And it was the making of art, the people that connected with her on an artistic front that really made this impact. And ultimately it's what we have of her, right? Like it's her legacy. Mm. And I wanted to bring that to children. And I had all these artist friends now. I was on Broadway and I had dancers and singers and, and, and you know, graphic designers that I could connect with kids facing illnesses like Katie's. Um, and so I started it then and we kind of started small. We would do like some gallery showings in New York City. We did like Broadway week at a um, summer camp for kids um, facing cancer and other illnesses. And it grew from there. And so we've been doing it for 10 years. And honestly, this quarantine has been such an interesting time because we have had to make so much content. So I have like 
Broadway music directors, like showing how they compose songs and Broadway performers and choreographers, like choreographing dances that you can do in a chair or mm. in a hospital bed. And it's mm. all on our Instagram, on our IGTV. And um, it's been an incredible 10 years. And I'm just like very excited to see where we'll continue to go. Now, in Katie's Art Project, you reference music is medicine, art is medicine, dance is medicine, design is medicine. How have you seen that to be true? Yeah. So we basically realized that because we had so many different types of artists, it warranted sort of fractioning out the organization to um, different parts. Like, for example, Music is Medicine in that program, I connect songwriters with kids who want to write a song and they get together. It takes a couple of meetings, you know, right now, obviously everything's on Zoom, um, but they'll meet up and they'll just talk about like things that are similar to them, share each other's experiences. One about being a professional working artist, the other about being, um, you know, a kid in this situation. And we ultimately take their songs that they write and we release them on iTunes, Spotify, and all the money that they make from that song goes back to helping other kids make music. And, you know, it's twofold. One, you have an artist and kid who we sort of like level their playing field, right? So this artist who may be on Broadway or is a recording artist with a contract with Sony is coming to their hospital room or their Zoom, their Zoom room right now. Um, and and they're interested <clears throat> in them, in their story. Like to have a kid understand that their story is as important as any other story that's being told, you know, is so uplifting. And it really gives them something like when you're talking, like I just was told I have three months to live. I only have 12 weeks left in my life it takes us six weeks to write a song that gives each, you know, 50% of the rest of your life, hmm. something to look forward to. And it is so impactful for the kids, but really the surprise for me is always the artists. Like the artists know that they're going into like, quote unquote, do something good, but what they get out of it is so in, in like, it's so intense. And I love to tell this, this one story, um, you know, and so obviously like all the other programs are that like dance as medicine uses dance as a mm -hmm. medium for, you know, doing that design as medicine. It's a little bit more craft based. It's about like yeah. decorating their space and their rooms and also allowing them to create things that they can then give away. Right. Cause one of the things that I always talk about with this group is like for artists and kids who are facing terminal and life-threatening illness, a legacy is not secured yet, right? Talking about Hamilton, um, you know, an artist just wants their voice to be heard. They want to get their voice out there. They want people to know their name and their art. For the kids, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Like they're not getting to go to college and start a career and maybe be well-known in an industry. So both of those groups of people are looking for a way to make their voice last, make an impact. And Katie's Art Project does that in an instant. Like the second they create this art, create these projects, they're able to give it away we put it on Spotify. We share it all over the internet. People know their name. They know their story. And what we have found is, you know, we can't make sure that every single one of these kids lives. We That, that we can't do. But what we can do is we can make sure that the life that they have left is so full and that their family that is left behind has this unbelievable, incredible memory that their life really, truly meant something and that they had an impact um, on not just the artists that they work with, but all the people that their art touches. I had a chance to watch a number of the the videos, especially the ones um, where the children were creating yeah. music with the musicians, and and they they were really powerful. And as I watched that, it was really interesting seeing the patients, um, you know, creating this this beautiful music um, out of their soul, and and the joy that they were getting from creating it with that other musician. And you could also see the smile on the musicians' uh, face as well. Oh, yeah. 
they always tell us it's like life changing. So it's very, very awesome to witness and just bear witness of, you know, what happens with them. And it's crazy because we have to jump through hoops to get those videos mm-hmm. made, which is why not every video has the kids in it because the hospitals are so oh, anti, like hospitals just, you know, they're more afraid that you're going to sue them because there's a misplaced needle out of place in the mm-hmm. background of a video than actually like impacting whatever. I shouldn't say that because I'm in trouble. But, like <laughs> it's that's, that's why we don't have more videos with the kids, but w- the ones we do have with the kids, like you said, is, are um, really impactful. Yeah, the one I'm I'm thinking about too. Now that you say that, the the child was outside for for most of it. They were on a, yep. a lawn, I think, out in front yep. of the uh, hospital. Uh-huh. Okay, so that <laughs> that's not just because of the beautiful scene. Um, it's not. Also, it is not. <laughs> so we we're talking about these uh, forms as medicine um, for for the children. In in what ways have you seen this project become medicine for you? You know, that's like a twofold answer, and I'm like a pretty honest person. Um, it it this project has had equal highs and lows it is mm. so difficult to run a nonprofit organization and to just really like carry all the things on your back and um i i had an assistant prior to covid and then when we all got laid off on broadway i had to furlough him and he's now in like a new career cuz who knows when Broadway's coming back. Yeah. Um, but it's really, you know, the ways that it's been medicine for me is like every time I see one of these projects happen, it's a glimpse of like, okay, we have to keep doing this. But honestly, all the in-between is so freaking hard. Mm. <laughs> just like gathering funds and we don't really pay anybody. We just like, you know, if you're making a song, you have to pay for the recording studio and the distribution on Spotify and all of that, you know, just to make money back, you have to pay money, of course. And, um, you know, trademarks and attorneys to do trademarks, like all those things cost money. No one, we don't have anyone on salary. We don't have, um, you know, a really big overhead, but it's so much of it becomes like a business, you know, that it, it's just, it, it's medicine. And also sometimes I'm like, is this killing me slowly? <laughs> you know? I'm like, Should I be doing this? And I, mm. you know, and then another project happens. And like right now we're doing an improv class with, um, Brooklyn comedy collective. So like a, a, wow. a well-known improv artist in New York city, uh, comedian is working with three kids from across the country Aww. and they're doing like a small intimate improv thing. And it's just like, it's because I have to do this. I have to have the zoom meeting open. So I kind of just like, you know, I'm like a voyeur. I'm like listening, but with my camera off the whole time, but it's just like, you hear, you see it happen. And you're like, this is why I do this. This is why for three months mm-hmm. we fundraise to do X, Y, and Z. Because yep. when we see that happen, when you see the results, it makes everything worth it. And it's funny because it's kind of similar to like the industry of Broadway. Like I say to people all the time, kids, students, not just people, but students particularly who want to be in the industry. I'm like, you've got to fall in love with auditioning. You have to fall in love with being out of work because generally speaking, most of your time is going to be out of work auditioning. You know, like you book a commercial and then you spend 10 months working to book your next commercial or three years if you're lucky. And it's similar to that Katie's art project. Like so much of it is like this nitty gritty stuff that I really don't like doing. Like how much do I like, like making Instagram posters to promote our improv show? I don't really like that part of it. But you know what I love when I'm listening in on the zoom and one of the kids says something hilarious and they feel great and everybody laughs. And I'm like, Hmm. that's, that's worth it. They're going through chemotherapy right now. And that laugh just healed 
all of our souls a little bit, you know? Yeah, I appreciate you pointing out um, the difficulty and and being in the grind and and doing the things that aren't necessarily easy, but but that need to be done in mm-hmm. order for your project uh, to keep going. Can you tell me a little bit more about the improv? So that seems to be a new uh, project. How did that come to be? Yeah, I'm just gonna say that my son is in the background growling like a dinosaur. So if you hear a little <laughs> grunt, that's my that's my one and a half year old. Um, what, what kind of dinosaur is he trying to be? Well, we got him this costume for for uh, um, Halloween, so I'm assuming that he's attempting to be a T-Rex. That's what it sounds like to me, at least, but he, he wasn't able to tell me in words. Um, so improv. I think the improv in particular, you know, as someone who's worked on Broadway and as someone who has um, seen what can happen, what can surprise you, um, having the skills of an improv uh, actor are so excellent because so many times you find yourself in positions where you're like, um, we're going off book here. <laughs> you know, a set piece doesn't come on. A dancer doesn't go to the right spot. I can say as someone who's a Broadway performer that there are constantly <laughs> scenarios where you are like, I'm not sure what's happening here. And you kind of have to like roll with the punches, whether it's a set piece not coming on an actor goes up on their line, you know, which is where they forget their line or a dancer's in the wrong spot, you know, and you kind of just have to improv, you have to make it up on the spot. And so having skills of an improv actor it, are so important. And it's not necessarily something that you study, you know, like, unless you're a comedian, you're not definitely studying improv. And it's been really interesting for me to kind of listen in because I haven't necessarily taken, you know, I've taken dance improv classes, but not acting improv. And so it's like kind of wonderful to hear um, all these skills that these kids are learning and, and it's why we chose improv. And ultimately, um, the reason we had this group of kids that was a group of teens and we were like, Hey, what would you like to see from Katie's art project? And they threw out everything from like costume design, graphic design and to improv. So they were actually the ones that said we would like an improv class. So that's why we sought it out in the first place, but I'm so grateful that we did. It's the second time that we're doing it. Uh, Stephanie, you're very talented and gifted in the arts. One of the areas you've gotten some of the most acclaim is through your work as a choreographer. Um, I want to dive into that a bit. First, how would you describe choreography to someone like myself who's maybe not that familiar? I mean, I know it deals with dance, but it's so much more. What is choreography? I love that question. Um, Just so straightforward. (laughs) Uh, It's funny because... I don't think a lot of people actually realize how much more than dance choreography, you know, how much more there is. And I think the best way to sort of answer that is to talk about my job as the associate choreographer of Hamilton and what I've done throughout the course of the past six years to, to do that job. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing is, okay, yes, you make up the dance moves, but you can't make up the dance moves until you sort of with the director generally, mapped out the concepts, the ideas, the arcs of the characters, and how the different characters, including the ensemble, are going to help tell that story. So what I mean is, for example, let's say you listen to, um, you've never seen Hamilton, which now it's on Disney Plus. So now, you know, it's not not so common anymore. But um, you listen to the, the cast album. And you know, maybe you don't hear people singing in the background, but you picture like some, you know, in wait for it, you picture Burr maybe on stage by himself. But then all of a mm-hmm. sudden in the middle of the song, the cast starts singing. <laughs> and so you can't just in a musical, just all of a sudden have the entire company walk out on stage and start singing. You have to actually choreograph them and weave them into the moments mm-hmm. beforehand. And it's quite delicate. So like you can imagine that if someone's speaking alone, 
and suddenly people are walking around them, you really either have to build a world or people will be like, why is that man walking behind Burr singing, wait for it. So choreography, ultimately it's dance, but really what it does in order to make the show dance, you first have to weave the picture and the fabric of the world in which the characters, the ensemble all live in so that you know where the dance can be so that you know where the dance can live. Like the dancing and the choreography, interestingly enough, like the word choreography is the last thing that you do generally. And and now it's different. Like, let's say, for example, if you're talking about like dancing, dancing with the stars, they're choreographing one dance. Of course, the, the primary thing is the dance steps. That's like, you know, that's your number. You're choreographing the dance steps. Are you mapping out the number and like where you want to take the audience first? It starts low. Then there's a big dance break here and they do this and lift and then they end. And yeah, sure. You're doing that, but not on the same scale that you're doing it in musical theater and in musical theater in particular, um, you know, to varying degrees, but especially now in contemporary theater where you find that the, the sets are becoming more abstract. Like a lot of shows just use chairs. Like for example, Hamilton uses chairs. Like instead of building a courtroom, we just put three chairs in a row and we say to the audience, that's a courtroom, you know, and and whether they get it or not on a subconscious level, they understand that like that person's on trial, that person's, you know, being the juror, that person, whatever. Um, That's happening in a lot of shows. It's, you know, um, um, come from away the show about the airplanes, the entire airplane is chairs in a row. There's no airplane on stage. You know, back in the day, they'd build this set that's like a piece of an airplane that just, sh- and then like drive a half of a car on stage. They don't really do that anymore. Um, and so the choreographer is the one who is responsible for choreographing all those chairs <laughs> in the mm. movement of the chairs, which is really like building the world. Like it's, it's, it's a really integral part of the storytelling and the set design and the direction. Um, and so choreographers are responsible for all of that. Um, obviously we do cast the show. So there's a lot of HR and management involved in my job at Hamilton, um, you know, coordinating with people. Well, if this dancer goes to this company, well then who's going to go to this company and do they match with? So it's a lot of, um, you know, managerial sort of stuff. And, and additionally, you know, the other thing that I think choreography is that a lot of people don't necessarily realize is, you know, more specifically in things like you see, like on film and, and commercials, for example, um, it's a lot of working with like the DP, the director of photography and talking about what the audience sees. So like, if, like, for example, like I choreographed the, this commercial that people love to talk about the, um, uh, time of your life commercial, the Super Bowl commercial that, uh, with Odell Beckham Jr. and, um, Eli Manning. And, um, you know, I had to work beforehand with the director to say, and the DP to say like, what, how wide is your shot? Like I'm going to choreograph a shot that's you know, 30 feet, but you're only going to get five feet of it. I need to know when you're going to zoom into five feet. So I know to adjust the choreography. Hmm. Um, so it's really working like in a multimedia way, especially now with like zoom land, it's very much that way. Cause remember dance was not designed to be ingested via film, right? So like when people made movies, they designed movies to be ingested via film. Like someone created a scene, they put a camera here, and they they created the scene to be in like like literally I'm using this word ingested because it's like the way that we consume information. They designed it to be taken in in a two dimensional way, 
and dance is not that way. Dance is, was originally an art form created to be watched in person. So like you can feel the energy of the human hmm. dancing and you're sitting there. That's not the case anymore. And so dancers and choreographers are like really having to do a hard pivot because um, like it is just not the same to watch movement in two dimensions. Like I'm doing this thing right now on Instagram, this like dance like you can't vote challenge for kids that are 17 and under. And last night I like the day I'd like making up a dance every single day to the election so that they can like express themselves, you know, get their voices out and encourage them to have conversations about the election, even though they can't vote. And, um, last night's dance that I did was like, if I did that dance in person, you'd be like, what is that? But it worked because it was specifically meant for a camera to be ingested on Instagram with a two by two, you know, two inch, but a two inch square. And so um, choreographers also have to take in all of that information. So you used, use words like mapping and weaving and, and building a world, which, which is really fascinating. So what's that process look like, right? You've, you've already mentioned it's sort of one of the last things that is done, but when you go to map, right, to create this world, to weave these things together. Uh, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So literally, you know, the first thing is obviously talking to the director and saying like, Hey, you know, I was thinking that dancers are going to move here. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. If they're going to move here, we have to bring them on two songs before and on this line. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. So that's like okay. the first level of the map, like getting with the director. And if you're obviously, if you're the director choreographer, you get with yourself and you think that out. Um, and so like now I have a list, right? A list saying, okay, I need these people to be on stage here and they're dancing here. So now I know I have eight counts of eight that I have to choreograph. So then I get a bunch of dancers in a room. Right now it's a Zoom room. And Stephanie, go, Stephanie what's eight counts of eight? Oh, great, great. Thank you for that. Um, perfect. So um, like if you're listening to Hamilton, my shot, for example, right? So you're saying like, I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. That's a count of eight. Right. Because you, if you were counting it, it's like one, two, three, four. That's how dancers talk. Like our language is an eighth. Thank you so much. Um, and so <laughs> when you count music in order to um, convey the information, dancers speak in language of count. So like this move will be on count two eanda or something. That's like dancer, dancer speak, um, which means if you were splitting count two into four parts, it's on the 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 third of the four parts right so um like every count can be like one and two and three and four and or you can be like one e and a two e and a three e and a so you can break each quarter note down into two or four parts essentially um but that's a heady answer to say eight counts generally speaking is like a pre-chorus and a chorus like for for yeah. people out there that are like music lovers if you listen to any pop song Generally speaking, the pre-chorus is four counts of eight and the chorus is four counts of eight. So that's that's eight counts of eight for you right there. Um, yeah. So let's say like I know that I need eight counts of eight of choreography. I'll get into a room with dancers um, and we'll start with, you know, this is what it needs to feel like. This is what it needs to look like. And this is the part where every choreographer works differently. Like some people work with like vision boards, pictures, videos of other mm. choreography. Um, you know, this is where each process is very individual to the person, um, you know, and, and then you create that eight counts of eight. And now, and now I know that I have like a backbone, like, let's say, for example, I'm choreographing the chorus. Now that chorus, I know, okay, when I see the, 
that's maybe like the big chorus, like the third chorus in the song, right? So now if I'm going back, I know on the first chorus, maybe I want to have like one dancer hint at that movement. So the audience doesn't Mm. notice it, but the audience kind of subliminally understands the language Mm -hmm. of the song so that when Mm -hmm. suddenly when everybody does it, the third chorus, it has the feeling that a third chorus has, which, which ultimately, what does a chorus do for us, right? What, what we respond to as human beings is familiarity. And, um, you know, like there's all these studies done, you know, symmetry and familiarity are things that cause humans to feel contentment and love and all of these positive insights, like all these studies done on like, um, facial features, right? Like people that have more symmetrical faces are generally more, um, uh, uh, likable to strangers. And, and similarly speaking, when you do studies with babies, it's familiarity of face. Like the more times they see a face, the more love they feel for that face. That's like the, the origin of our sense of connection. Um, and so it's the same thing for music, right? You hear a song, by the time you get to the third chorus, they add all the bells and whistles and there's music. And now you quote unquote, know the words and you're like, Oh, it feels so good. I love this chorus. And you're like, why do I love it? Well, that's why you love it. You love the song because it becomes that piece becomes familiar. And it's the same thing with dance. It's like, we're trying to do, we're trying to build that double down on that concept for the audience um, to create a familiarity without them even noticing. They don't have to, they don't have to do anything. They just have to take it in time and time and time again. And by the last time they do, there's a sense of like, oh, that's satisfying. Yeah. It seems to me, right. I've never uh, obviously ever choreographed anything, uh, but it seems to me like you could constantly be tweaking and moving and putting all of these parts together, how do you know when it's complete, when it's done, when you're no longer tweaking or moving, it's it's finished? When the producer tells you the show's frozen. Okay. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> when it's force- done. When they force <laughs> you to finish. There's always like, so the, freezing a show is the term that we use, which generally happens the, the night or two before the the critics come. So um, like, so critics don't actually come on opening night. That's when they release their reviews. So like for the few days before the weekend before whatever it is, we'll freeze the show so that the critics can start coming and they're actually critiquing the final version. So it's always funny because on freeze day, you have a giant list and you're like (laughs) seeing red, your sweat is dripping. You're like, I just have to finish. I just have to clean the lab. This has to be fixed. This has to be fixed. And then like, ultimately you always walk away from freeze day with a huge list of things that didn't get completed Mm. because you could just, you could just tweak it forever and ever and ever. And like, you know, I kind of like always have this image of like, if I was a painter, like ultimately Mm -hmm. every painting would just be black because people would just keep adding color and adding this. And it's just like, suddenly, like, it's just, you've covered the entire canvas. It's like that. It's so it's, it's to to be able to do everything you want to do is also not a healthy, not, not healthy, but that doesn't necessarily make for better art. That's the way to Mm. put it, I think. You know? Okay, so you're sort of forced into that, uh, letting go. And how do you feel when you're looking at that paper of, of those red things that you that you weren't able to get done? How do you know they're red? Did you look at my computer? That's <laughs> um, No, you know, I feel like I always watch a show and go like, oh, I'm glad I didn't make that change because this version is actually like I was critiquing myself, but I was obviously tired because this is better. And then sometimes mm-hmm. you watch a show and you're like, oh, my God, I can't watch this part. I wish I changed it. I can't watch it. You know, so it's just like a mixture of everything. And, and Mm -hmm. ultimately nothing is, there's no such thing as perfect art because it's a living, breathing thing. So, yeah. um, Yeah. You know. Yeah. I would love to talk about Hamilton. Well, we have to talk about Hamilton. Um, If you can think back. (laughs) Yeah. It's this, you know, it's this popular musical. Could you think back to the time that you held the script 
in your hands. What were your thoughts when you read it over? Um, I can tell you exactly what I thought because I, you know, this is my third show I've done with Lynn Manuel. Hmm. And uh, uh, what were the other? What were the other two? I did Bring It On. He was a co-lyricist mm-hmm. of Bring It On and In the Heights. Yep. Okay. And um, so I was part of In the Heights, not from the beginning, but but you know the off Broadway version. So pre prior, just prior to Broadway. Um, and we made a lot of changes. And and the off Broadway version of In the Heights was incredible. And also like it got better when we went to Broadway. You know, like hmm. like they made it better. When we, I read Hamilton, it was almost like in his first, the first incarnation of incarnation of Hamilton was so good. And now mm. remember like, okay, so I was there really early on, but like, I'm not Tommy Kale, the director who like talked Lynn out of, I'm sure some moments of songs that were like, that's not good. Change that, whatever. But like the, the, I mean like the first workshop that we did. So I'm talking like two years before Broadway was so good. Like, I was like, what are we going to do? Like, what are we working on? Like, what are we changing? Because Mm. it makes sense. The character stories were so compelling. And I don't know if it's because it was based on truth. Obviously we do stray from the truth a bit for it to be, you know, like in sort of like enjoyable entertainment. Um, But for the most part, obviously it's, it it, it is definitely based on these true stories and it's very close to the truth. Um, But it was just like, I don't even know honestly how he did it. And like I said, like I've done two shows before. He's very talented. I, I know that he's talented. And still I was like, I don't even understand how you did this. And we all said, you know, we've said before like, oh, this is special. You know, we're on something special for like other shows. But when we read this, we were like, oh, this is special. I mean, nobody could have conceived of what happened to Hamilton, how it became this, you know, like it's like this zeitgeist, this crazy sort of like cultural phenomenon. But mm-hmm. It's definitely, um, it was, it was like, we were like, wow. So you were a performer in, in Hamilton and the supervising choreographer. How did that work? Having, having both of those roles? Yeah. You know, I feel that one of my best skills is like the ability to be pretty diplomatic and I just kind of like wore two hats. And when I was wearing one hat, I didn't try to wear the other hat so like for example like when I was on stage performing with people I gave them my full commitment you know like I didn't I didn't like watch them to see if they were doing something wrong or you know or something like that like I just kind of was like and and I was watching them to do something and I was like writing it down when I got off stage but like in the moment on stage I was like really there with them um and then when I was giving them notes right which is one of the things that you do you walk around before the show and you just like give people corrections sort of like maintain the integrity and spacing and intention whatever um when I was giving them the notes I didn't I didn't try to like pal around you know I, I wasn't like how was your lunch today? Also move over in this number. You're in the wrong spot. Like when I came, I was like, Hey, <laughs> I'm coming in to give you notes. Is that okay? You know? And, and I, yeah. I try to do that at least obviously I'm, no one's perfect, but I really tried to like wear the different hats and not confuse things because you know, what is act acting or, or performing on stage? It's the ability to really be vulnerable with someone and, and the audience can tell if you're not in a vulnerable position. So mm-hmm you know, I wanted to be on stage and be someone that people could be vulnerable with. And you can't be vulnerable when you're thinking that I'm going to come in and make some correction that puts you on the defensive. Um, 
So that's kind of how I did that. And, you know, it's also the best place to note a show from is on the inside. Like I saw things when I was on that I was like, I would have never caught that problem from the audience, you know? Mm. Um, So it was really like just a front row seat to really help support the show staying really clean and healthy. Thinking about choreography um, and, and Hamilton, what what scene or dance combination or whatever else the eights the double eights whatever you want to call it <laughs> what uh which one of those do you think you took the biggest risk in designing um some form of choreography or dance uh movements um well i'll speak for andy because andy is the choreographer and so i am you know i'm merely his support but um i think the thing that was really the most difficult to sort of get down and therefore choreograph ahead of time and sort of really be prepared to not just be putting out our first draft, but to have really thought through, made some mistakes and be putting out a um, a more advanced draft was the turntable. The scenes where the turntable is very active, for example, mm. satisfied where it's rewinding and Skylar sisters where everybody's spinning in different directions because what ultimately happens is we didn't have a turntable until tech rehearsal. So just to give you like a timeline of how shows are built, right. I told you, we do like the, like, we'll do like a reading of the show where they just read the music. Then they'll, you know, do a show where they like sing through. Then we'll do a a dance lab where we choreograph a bunch of dances and then we'll do an off Broadway. So it's like the show's done a lot of incarnations. By the time we got to off Broadway, the dancers are like singing everything, dancing everything. And there is no turntable. Because we haven't gotten to the technical rehearsals yet where they built the set. So we were having to say to 20, you know, 19 people at a time, okay, you know, the 10 of you are actually spinning in this direction. So when you're done singing, we think, we don't know, but we played with figurines and we think that you're going to be standing right around here. So in order to do the next dance step, that means that you're standing next to her, you're standing next to her. But if we're off by 10 degrees, you're actually going to do that dance step with her and you're going to, but there's, you know, there's still a minute left of the song. So we have to finish choreographing it. So everything we're teaching you might be wrong, but we won't find out until we're in tech to two, two weeks away from opening night, you know? Um, so yeah, so that was really hard, difficult. And it's not like Andy said, let's just put people on the turntables and spin them around. He's doing his crazy Andy Blankenbuehler choreography. So it's just like, really like it would have just messed us up so much if our math wasn't right um and thankfully andy's like really meticulous and and he really was so close to exacting with where we thought people were going to end up Hmm. um but i'll tell you that was really the hardest thing for me as the associate choreographer oftentimes like i find myself in the room alone setting the first draft because andy's you know with the creative team you know conceiving of some portion of act two or something like that. And so being in the room alone, setting Skylar sisters for the first time is like, I would say one of my top 10 most traumatic memories of of my career, because it was just, there was just a full mental breakdown from the cast because I had in my head sort of an image of where I thought they were going to be and just trying to explain to them all and really just like bring everybody on board with that idea and go like, okay, you're all spinning and you're going to end here, but there's no music. So you have to, run in a circle, even though you're dancing and you're not actually going to run. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was like, what, what are you talking about? And they of course don't want to go into opening night or these, you know, without perfecting what they think is the version in their head. So they were frustrated because they were like, well, how am I supposed to practice my show? If this isn't my show. How did you get through that? I turned around 
I put my hands on the table. Alex Lacamoire, who's the composer, was uh, uh, who's the orchestrator, was sitting there with headphones on, orchestrating on a piano. I bit my tongue because if I didn't bite it, I was just going to start crying. Mm. And I bit my tongue to just like get myself present in this place. Nothing like a little, you know, self-flagellation uh, to remind you that in the here and now. <laughs> and I turned around and I said, here's the thing. There's, you know, 21 really intelligent people in this room. And I'm guarantee that there's 21 excellent ways to execute this, except I'm the person who's in charge right now. And so we're going to do it my way. And if it's not an excellent way to do it, we're going to find out, but I need you all to be on board with us making those mistakes together. Hmm. We have half hour till lunch. I know you're also hungry grab a sip of water and let's figure out how the fuck to do the end of this number. And that's how it went. And we did it. And the room was angry. And when the director came in, he was like, what did you do to my cast? (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I was like, I did what it, I did what it, what it took to get us to the end of the number. So, so I'm not familiar with, you know, theater and how things work, but I'm thinking to myself, why didn't you just bring in a turntable? It's, it's not that simple. Let's see. Uh, I don't even know where to start with this question. Okay. Okay. Ultimately, it's related to money, right? So if you can imagine that a Broadway show raises, let's just make a simple number, $1 million to open. That's really obviously unrealistic. Most Broadway shows are in the realm of like 10 million, 15 million. But um, so let's say the Broadway show raised $1 million. The turntable costs $300,000, right? Because you have to put bids out to a shop. If they have to do trial versions, um, it's a really huge mechanism. And then additionally, it takes, um, you know, it's everything's union where we are. So every single person that touches anything is a union. And so they're paid union dues and then 401ks. And, you know, so it's just like the manpower itself. So, you know, if you raised $1 million to open a show and that 1 million has to get you through until you, until the paying audience starts to pay back, it's really not a lot of, of money ultimately. And if the turntable, you know, costs however much, it's just like, to give you, you know, the, the fast version of that, we never did a rehearsal process without a turntable again. Like we made the investment once we had the money to as Hamilton to have a rehearsal turn. We never did that again. Um, but at the beginning when nothing is set, you can't waste money on like a spare turntable. Um, Mm. you know, essentially is the short story, the short version. Yeah, I have many, you know, many favorite scenes in Hamilton. You know, I could just pick one and and we could talk about it. But uh, one of the ones uh, I've been thinking about today is Hurricane. Can can you talk a little bit about the creation of that scene? I'm so glad that you brought that up, actually, um, for a number of reasons. And the thing that's popping into my head right away. So um, Howell Binkley, who's an incredibly prolific lighting designer on Broadway and also in the concert dance world, um, he was the lighting designer for Hamilton and like almost every other Broadway show that I've done. Um, he passed away, uh, last month. And, um, there's a couple of Howell Binkley lighting moments that will stay with me forever. And the top of hurricane where the lights iris in on him is one of them. And yeah. And the film, you see it so well, like when you see it on Broadway, if you're in the mezzanine, it's really clear. And so like, for me, I didn't always watch the show in the mezzanine, especially when I was creating it. Cause I was always running up and down, you know, from Andy in the house, you know, where the, you know, right in, in the first couple rows to the, the stage to talk to the cast. And so when I finally saw the show from the mezzanine, I gasped when I saw that moment. Mm. I was like, oh, it just took my breath away. And 
And I think that's such a perfect example of where the dance and the lighting and the direction and the costume mm. and everything and the set, everything is in concert to build what ultimately you're viewing as, you know, the movement and the construction of that movement of that moment. Um, it is such a, a, you know, as perfect of a collaboration as you can get is that number to me. Um, and so in addition to Howell's lights, you'll notice that there's certain things that happen, which is one, the number before that is called We Know. And it's the number where, um, you know, the Sons of Liberty and Burr are basically like, not Sons of Liberty, um, Jefferson, Madison and Burr are like taking Hamilton to task. Like they're like, mm -hmm. we got you, yeah. you know, we, and so if you notice everyone on the surround, everyone on the upstairs and the downstairs is sitting in a sort of not judging the way that the um, Madison and Jefferson and Burr are judging, but they're observing in a way like if you could sort of like watch yourself watching a really intense part of a TV show where you're not the char character in the show, but your reaction is of that nature. So the entire cast is sitting on stage watching We Know. So they're bearing witness to what will ultimately be Hamilton's huge, the beginning of his downfall. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting in a way that has judgment to it. It has direction, right? People are like sitting sideways, their legs are crossed, their arms are crossed. Maybe they're like leaning, you know, leaning back on the wall, kind of like, I'm safe, you're not type of juxtaposition. And then what happens in the downbeat of hurricanes, so if you go back and you watch the video, everybody goes from that judgment position to a blank slate. So everyone's legs, arms, feet go parallel, meaning like mm. they go like, yep. like sort of like, you know, school children, and then their gaze goes forward. So they don't look at Hamilton, they don't look at anything. So everyone becomes blank. So it's basically like, everything leaves Hamilton, and he becomes that little boy alone on, you know, the island that he came from. And we go back to him as, um, as like this he's remembering what like this thing that he came from and then the movement builds from there which is really really cool because when he says the lyric raised enough for me to book passage on a ship that was new york bound when he says that line what happens is is three people start to crank the stage so we call them cockroaches but if you notice the turntable starts to yeah the turn and the reason why we call them cockroaches is because like cockroaches are like one of the most incredible living creatures, right? Like they're unbelievably resilient and adaptable. Um, they have an excellent means of um, reproduction and they can like live through almost anything. You know, like if you live in New York, you can like pour acid on a cockroach and they're like, I'm fine, dude, how are you? You know? Um, and so that's why we call it that. Cause that's really what Hamilton was. He was this like almost superhuman resilience he exhibited to get mm -hmm. to, from the beginning of his life to here. So these three cockroaches jump onto the stage and they begin to turn the turntable. Obviously they don't, but that's what the dance move does. And you'll notice that only a couple of people on stage move and, one, we're hiding. Three people make costume changes, which you would never know. But three people leave the stage to make a costume change. One goes to put on a, um, a blue coat like they're doing Yorktown. One is James Reynolds. So he goes to get his James Reynolds costume on. And the other one is Seabury. Who, so it's like we're seeing like all of these images like you know people always kind of picture like right before you pass away maybe you have like this movie in your mind of everything that happened in your life that's like yeah. kind of what this is so those three images leave and then um washington and the king who are kind of like 
the dueling versions of father figures to Hamilton, right? Like you can imagine the king is like what everyone doesn't want their father to be, which is like this sort of like always like, well, it's not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. And then you have Washington who always raised Hamilton up and like lifted him out of his station to make him better than he thought he could be. Um, So the two of them lean in. So all those things happen at once. But what you perceive as the audience is just the, um, the beginnings of some small movement. And so then when we go into the big, um, um, I picked up a pen, I wrote my own deliverance, mm-hmm. boom, in that instant, the entire stage is, is frozen in a picture. And if we didn't set up that moment before, we couldn't have gotten all those people to these mm. various pictures. And, um, that's just honestly, that's like one of my favorite numbers in the show. I'm so glad that you brought that up. We, I never talk about it. It's, it's just so beautifully constructed by everybody. It is. Yeah. And I love uh, listening to you tell the story and how all of these things are inter- interconnected. And I love the light in, in that scene, but I've never really mm-hmm. thought about it. You know, the role that it's playing. I just loved it, you know, and then the movements telling the story. Um, yeah, that's that's a beautiful description. And, and I really appreciate you bringing that uh, to light and bringing it to life as well. Um, Stephanie, one of the goals of this podcast is to have conversations like we're having now um, to really help us think deeper about educational practices. And this uh, has been a super interesting, eye-opening, insightful conversation, even though we're not you know, necessarily specifically talking about education. There's so much that we can learn. Um, but right now, I do want to narrow in a little bit closer to some specifics, maybe some things that can help us change uh, the way that we do education. You have mentioned your teachers, Mickey and George, and how they changed your life. Can you tell us that story? Yes. Uh, Mickey DeFranco and George Warren, they own a dance studio in central New Jersey where I'm from. And I um, moved around a lot as a kid. And um, I ultimately landed on a dance studio in 11th grade. Um, So the last two years of my dance studio life, uh, because someone that I was on the dance team with in high school suggested I go to their studio because I was saying I was looking for a new studio. And so I only took um, their classes for two years, but the, I, it's like almost when every time I say that, I'm like, how is that possible? Cause their impact on me was so huge. Mm. Um, and they, it was very simple. They, um, responded to hard work. There were no excuses in their dance school. So like you could have been late because like your mom was with your sister doing the, and it didn't matter. Like nobody ever listened to your excuses. Like you walked in and it was like, you're late and you weren't allowed to say, but And there was something so frustrating and also so empowering about that because it really made you um, responsible for everything that happened um, in your life. And obviously, you know, to varying degrees, that that is not possible in a lot of ways. There's a lot of, um, you know, I want to just like briefly mention there's societal impact on what we can actually be responsible for. So I don't want to um, discount that. But in a way, for me, this little girl in high school, it was kind of like, oh, okay. And so now I suddenly like became responsible for saying like, mom, you can't do that thing. I have to get here on time. So can you, mm. you know, drive me? And it, it just like kind of upped my, I was always a hard worker. I was like kind of born with the hard worker gene, but um, it kind of like upped my um, belief in my ability to impact things that I had previously thought I couldn't impact. And, um, and the other thing that they respected 
besides hard work and responsibility was the ability to be excellent in different ways. So for example, like, you know, uh, some dancer can do five turns and there are some studios where it's like, if you can't do five turns and kick your face, you're not a respected dancer here. Mm. And there they really respected intention and getting the ideas and the, um, of the, of the numbers across the intention of the numbers across. And so they respected performance quality. Yes, they respected technique. They taught technique. They drilled technique, but they also respected the ability to, if you didn't have technique, they didn't go like, ah, you're not worth it. I'm not, I'm not investing my time in you. Um, and for someone like me that came from different studios where the technique was very, uh, you know, always kind of variable. Um, I didn't have the five turns that everyone else had. And yet they always gave me opportunities. Like, yes, Hmm. they pushed me. They were like, Stephanie, we got to get your turns better. You know, they weren't like, oh, that's okay. It's no big deal. Like they pushed (laughs) me hard. Um, But they also were like, hey, she, did you watch her in this part? Did you care that she didn't do five turns? Me either. Because it was so compelling and they respected that. And, and so I learned the, um, that every performer, the talent level is going to shift, is going to vary. But when you have the ability to connect with people, you have the ability to connect with people. And I use that always in my career. So you do a lot of teaching, right? Teaching Mm -hmm. other dancers. When you're teaching, what makes that experience a success? For me or for them? Yeah. Well, I guess both. But what do you think makes a successful learning experience? Yeah. yeah, Let's talk about your students. Yeah. I, I, I say that because I, t- I, t- I did a Zoom today and all of the students had their cameras off. Um, and it wasn't a dance class. It was like more of like a talking to students. Um, and it was uh, so off-putting to me because I realized how much I, you know, adjust what I'm saying to the students, like based on like, are you, get, are you understanding that? Like, I don't have to ask them. I can mm-hmm. like sort of see. And then, you know, I adjust. But um Uh, what makes a successful experience having your zoom cameras on? No, uh, (laughs) I think that for the students, what makes a successful um, experience is if they can take what I taught them and apply it to something other than dance. So like I've done my job in a dance class. If I have dropped, you know, gems that are universal in that if someone says to me, like, what do you have to do to become a dancer in life? I'm not giving them like, well, you have to go to 42nd street and you have to do it. No, like I'm giving them things that they can like, okay, well, it turns out five years later, I didn't want to be a dancer, but that dance teacher once taught me this and, you know, it kind of helped me get me this finance job or, you know, just kind of being able to um, hone in on the things that are like universal, universal truths. And, um, you know, I always say like in Broadway auditions, um, I don't say this in the audition. I say this to people asking about the auditions, but that like, we know if we're going to like you in the first 15 seconds. And sometimes kids are like, but wait, but then what? But cause it's not about, yes, the secondary thing is about the d- whole dance that you did. But the first thing is like, I don't want to work with a, with a crappy human for six weeks. Mm. And so I can tell if when someone comes in the room and they accidentally stand in front of you, if you roll your eyes well, guess what's going to happen when I say something to you and then I change my mind. When I turn my back, you're going to roll your eyes and you're going to do it to the other cast members when they make a mistake. So if you come into an audition room, especially a sweaty, packed, intense New York City Broadway audition room, and you're still able to maintain your um, your humanity and your respect for other human beings, well, then you're going to be able to do that in 
you know, when we're all exhausted working 12, 14 hour days, three months in, in technical rehearsals. And additionally, um, you know, the, the people who are able to bring playfulness to any dance class to not take themselves or the material so seriously that they literally squeeze the life out of it, they're going to be able to, maybe they're not as talented as the person to the left of them, but they're going to be able to keep that thing breathing four months in, five months in, five years in. Let's talk to traditional schools. What do you think that they could learn from what you have seen to be effective in teaching? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is my one and a half year old, which is we thrive on routine and our memory is incited by um, by innovation, by newness. And so I think having this mixture of, um, you know, I'm going to tell you what to expect and we're going to do what I say. So you have trust in me. Like, I'm going to tell you, this is what we're going to do in the next hour. And this part's going to be pretty easy. This is going to get a little hard, but I'll be there for you. And then you do that. You do this, you do that. Then the students have trust in you. So there's now a a built-in trust, which can be very difficult to form in certain, um, you know, areas and, and in certain contexts. So I think really sticking to your guns and being the quote unquote adult in that way. And like maintaining a routine is really important. And then also every once in a while, you have to like throw something at them that they don't expect to just wake them up and just remind them why they came here to this class in the first place, or were forced into it, which is oftentimes the case. Like I spent the beginning of my career on Broadway teaching master classes like every single morning to groups of students that were visiting New York. And I'll tell you, sometimes I was teaching a master class to kids who were musical theater students. And sometimes I was teaching a master class to like a random elementary school from Ohio. And like, <laughs> you know, like 79% of those kids did not want to be in that hour and 15 minutes. And so it was like, how can I make this exciting for you? Even though you, A, you you say you have two left feet and you believe that truly about yourself, which I don't necessarily subscribe to whether someone can dance or not dance because I don't think it's um, objective like that, but like uh, subjective like that. But I think that there's um, a real uh, need for the students to feel like they know what's coming when they go to school that they understand what the routine is and they understand where the lines are so that when they go to bend them, they are expecting us to, to so like, like, no, in dance class, you don't lean on the walls and you don't sit down. You don't have to dance, but we don't sit and we don't lean on the walls. And here's why it's because we're asking our bodies to be engaged. You're asking the people around you to be engaged. And if you're sitting down, leaning on the wall, someone might trip over you when they're doing a dance step across the room. So you have to stay up and standing and moving and ready. So here's the reason that's the rule you know, we, we got to stick to it. And, and so like keeping their rules that are X, Y, Z, but then also like something I just did in, I was teaching, um, a masterclass for Rutgers university. And one of the problems right now that dancers are facing and all students and teachers are facing is that nobody feels like anyone's watching them. Right. So there was a different thing that happened when you were in class and you raised your hands and it was like, they're all going to laugh at me. Right. So either there's some student who's like, me, 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 I want everyone to hear me. And that's in their personality. And then there's some student who's like, I'd never speak in front of the class because if I'm wrong, it'll be mortifying. So right now, nobody's having to face that social dilemma on a daily basis. 
And if we don't start to get creative as teachers and do certain things to make people be highlighted, like one of the things I did for Rutgers was I had them go in two groups. So like you shut off your cameras and watch this group. Now you shut off your cameras and watch this group. But even then people are like, are they even watching me? So what I did was I had group one, every single one of them spotlighted someone in group two, but they weren't allowed to say who they were spotlighting. So all of group two, when they were dancing, they were like, Somebody could literally just be standing there watching me. And now my heart's racing. I'm having the feeling that I used to have when I was in dance class, dancing in front of people, that feeling of, oh my God, I have to get this right. I really have to perform. Mm -hmm. And the the kids and students in the class were like, I haven't felt that way in seven months. Like I haven't felt like I was actually dancing for anyone in seven months. And so I think, you know, as teachers, we have to be extra innovative in this time to keep those routines, create a scenario where the students can trust us, but also then surprise them and have them sort of surprise themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I love those uh, reminders and and those are great. You know, I oftentimes don't give routines enough credit. You know, I'm, I'm always thinking about being innovative mm-hmm. and creative. Let's do things differently. But sometimes I, I throw out the structures. So I, I love how you're sort of balancing both of those together. And, and I think they're they're, they're helpful, and that's a helpful reminder for us to think about. Uh, Stephanie, we are bringing this podcast episode to a close. Who would you like to give a shout out to? Uh, well, we spoke so much about Andy Blankenbuehler. I have to shout out Andy, who I've been working with for 14 years, and he is a creative genius, and I've been so lucky to work under him. Um, and I also have to shout out Brandon Schneider, who was my assistant prior to COVID, and he was my right hand for the last three or four years. And nothing with Katie's Art Project could have gotten to where to stay without him helping us along. Time for the final word. Stephanie, what would you like to say to close out this podcast? I just have to say thank you. I think, um, you know, being able to share our stories right now. And, you know, I know I've been diving into podcasts, especially during COVID. And I'm just grateful to people like you that are pushing um, ideas and and sharing them through podcasts and in this way. And I'm really grateful Mm -hmm. to be um, one of your guests. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, sharing your experiences, your passions, and how they might be able to be intersected in education. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 